The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. We are looking at the genealogy, the, the lineal descent of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this, uh, verses 2 to, 2 to 17 here, and, uh, and then we will pray and get to work. Matthew 1, we can start in verse 1, that's fine. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, literally the one belonging to Uriah, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. These names will be on the quiz later, so I hope you're you know, learning them as we go, okay? Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. This last verse is interesting too. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You notice, it doesn't say that Joseph was Jesus' father. It says, Joseph married, married to Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word, even those parts of it that we, in our feeble human weakness, sort of get easily bored with and discount and quickly ignore and turn away from. God, we just thank you for days like today, in which, by the discipline of working our way through your word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we are forced to reckon with why you think this is important and why you felt the need to record it. So God, open our hearts and our minds this morning to see the beauty of what you're trying to say to us. Help us to grasp it, Lord. Help us to treasure it. And help us to understand it so that we can know fully just exactly who the Messiah is. We praise you and we thank you for your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tax time comes every April. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants to pay them. But yet, nevertheless, we have to. Taxes are how we fund a great number of things, mostly politicians' salaries and travel and, you know, benefits and retirement and various other lucrative things that politicians get. But we also pay for things like roads and hospitals and health care, education, things of that nature. At the end of the day, you're giving your money away to somebody else because they say you have to so they can do whatever they want with it. That's the nature of taxes. It's been like that for a long, long time. It was like that here in Israel in the first century. Now, Israel is a province of Rome. This is at the height of Roman domination, the height of Roman imperialism. The first and second century is really when Rome is reaching its zenith, the, the climax of its power and its authority and its dominion. Now, as the authority in the land, they had the ability to charge taxes from all of their subjects. The way they did it was a pretty interesting way. I mean, it's a lot of administrative, you know, mumbo-jumbo. And really, Caesar, he likes to party and have a good time in his palace. And he doesn't want to actually have to look over all of these little details. So they had this practice in which they had these group of individuals known as the publicani or the publicans. 
And the publicans, basically, it's a group of uh, wealthy magistrates that could have been senators, it could have been just wealthy businessmen. They're called the publicans because they were basically, they were these coalitions that formed of individuals who would then bid on, it was like a contract job, you need to collect taxes from the province of, say, Israel. You don't actually have to go do it yourself. So you have a group of individuals that would bid on it. Okay? And what that means is there would be a time period, say five years, and they would say, for the next five years, this is reasonably the number or the amount of taxes that we think we can extract from this little province known as Israel. Okay? This is what we're thinking. And then they would have different factions of publicans that would then bid on it. It's like a government job. We're going we're gonna to bid on it. We think we can get this amount of taxes. We think we can successfully and for a profit collect this amount of taxes from that province. And they would obviously choose the high bidder, the guys that said they could get the most taxes. Oh, you really think you can get that much? Okay, well, then we will award the contract to you guys to get the taxes. Okay? So then the publicans that were awarded the job for collecting the taxes, they would go in, they would say, these are the taxes we're going to collect. And they would hire a bunch of local guys on the field locally, uh, people that knew the country, lived there, understood you know, the comings and the goings and all of the different cultural ups and downs of that country. And they would say, every year, every month, every week, I mean, I'm sure they had it down to an exact science, you need to extract this number of taxes from the people living in your region. Now, anything you want to extract up and above and beyond that is fine. You just make sure you come out with this amount of taxes. This is what we're taking. And the publicans operated the same way. You know, they had bid a contract for this amount, but they were really trying to, you know, double their money, so to speak. I mean, they had to collect this amount, but anything extra that they could get, they could keep. So they, they factored in their little margin of profit on the top end, and then they went down to the guys at the local level, and they said, this is what we need to make our margin of profit. If you guys want to add a little bit more sugar on top of that to pad your pockets to enhance your lifestyle, that's fine. But you will collect this number of taxes. That's the deal. So that brings us to first century Israel. There are two taxes. There's a, a poll tax, which is basically like our modern-day income tax. You have to pay a certain percentage just because of the fact that you're alive and you make a certain amount of dollars. Then there's what they would call a ground tax, which is basically what we would consider a property tax. If you own property, if you have this amount of land, you've got to pay taxes on that. So there's all kinds of gouging that's going on in first century Jerusalem, first century Israel. And people didn't really like it because they knew it was a racket. It's not like an armed highwayman comes in, a robber. He comes in, he holds you at gunpoint, and he threatens to take your money. And okay, you give him your money because you don't want to get shot or you don't want to get stabbed. But then you've got the power of the law behind you to chase him down. No, this was robbery being executed with the law, with the power of government. You didn't have any say in the matter. And it was clearly obvious that you were being robbed blind. As a result, the publicans, that is the tax collectors, they were in the same category as total pagans, total robbers, villains, rapists, murderers, the low life of low life. When you looked at a tax collector in this day and age, it wasn't like he was a guy in a profession that you really didn't like. No, this guy was a criminal from your perspective. And you didn't want to hang out with him. You didn't want to associate with him. Well, let's meet Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, you don't have to flip there, it's going to be up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 9, we, we meet Matthew. Now, we don't really know a whole lot about Matthew. Our, our records of him from the scriptures are limited. But we do know when Jesus called him. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus says, uh, I'm sorry, scripture says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, Jesus obviously saw something in Matthew. I mean, I don't know what it was. I could wager a guess just as best as any of you could. But he saw something there. And I think a, a real good guess is maybe that Matthew, he is a humble man, I think. What makes you say that? Well, there's another account in here of a guy named Zacchaeus, whom when the Lord called on his life and he repented, he made the statement he would repay everything fourfold that he had robbed, right? And he, he basically said, you know, when I repent, when I trust in Jesus, I'm going to pay it all back. There doesn't seem to be any indication here, really, and that's not to say it didn't happen, but there's no indication in the scripture that when Matthew came to faith in Jesus that he had to pay anything back. So, I mean, if we're going to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, we could say that maybe he wasn't really gouging people. Maybe he was really trying to do an honest job here, just collecting what he needed to collect and just taking the bare minimum that he needed to live to survive on. Wasn't really sticking it to people. 
The other thing is, in the Gospel of Matthew, as you work your way through it, Matthew never says, oh, and I was there, and I saw this, and oh, I, I did this, and I was with Jesus when this happened. He never talks about himself in the first person. He's so humble, even as he's writing his account of the life of Jesus, that he refers to himself persistently all throughout in the third person. Not even really stepping in and saying, yep, that's right, I was there and I saw this. Now he's writing the account, and the church attributes the book of Matthew overwhelmingly and unanimously to the apostle Matthew. But when you read it, when you actually go through it page after page after page, he is happy to kind of just sit in the background. And so perhaps you have a good man in a bad racket. Perhaps you have a good man, a decent man, and Jesus saw something and he called him and said, come, follow me. And Matthew didn't just get up and quietly walk away from his life in the tax collecting business. He didn't just say, yeah, okay, I, I want something more meaningful for my life. I want a something better to do. I want to follow God. He did all of those things, but he was bold in his faith. Oh, I flipped away. Why did I do that? Okay, got to flip back. Sorry. In Matthew chapter 9, following that passage where Jesus called him, Matthew, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he said, okay, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So there seems to be an indication that as soon as Matthew went after Jesus, I mean, all of his buddies, all the people that he knows, people in the tax-collecting business, his associates, his colleagues, they all get together with Jesus. In other words, Matthew, he's not just following Jesus, he's telling people he's following Jesus. I mean, the scripture is clear there. It says in verse 10, they were there with his disciples. The verse follows verse 9, in which he says he calls Matthew. So Matthew follows Jesus, and then all the tax collectors have a party. doesn't say whose house it was in. We could guess it might have been Matthew's house, but Matthew's there. He's one of the disciples, he's with Jesus, and all of his co-workers are there. Okay? And it goes on from there. So Matthew was vocal about his faith in Christ. Can you imagine what it might be like to be a guy living in a land that utterly despises you? Your neighbors despise you. The people you collect taxes from, even if they're not your immediate neighbors, they just live in the town around you or in the district in which you work. If they despised you and they didn't like you and they didn't want to have anything to do with you, could you imagine the strain of that? The stress of just knowing that for the rest of your days, even if you get out of this business and you get into a different business, perhaps, institutional memory, that these people are going to scorn you. They're going to shun you. They're going to want to have nothing to do with you based on the virtue of the fact that you collected taxes from them. And Matthew, immediately upon following Jesus, very open and very direct about following him. So years later, you're thinking about these people who don't like you, they shun you, they don't want to listen to what you have to say because you're Matthew, that tax collector. And the Lord lays it on your heart to sit down and to write out a gospel account. To write out a story for the sake of winning these people to faith. You're writing to a bunch of people that shun you. You're writing to a bunch of people that don't like you. And you're writing because you've got, the Lord has laid it on your heart that you want to see some of these people come to faith in Christ. And so you're going to write out a gospel, an account of the story of Jesus Christ. How would you begin? Well, Matthew begins with a genealogy. Now, most of us in this room, that might not be the first thing we jump to. Oh, yeah, let's trace his lineage. Let's look at his family tree. That's not how we would approach it. But yet, that's how Matthew approaches it. Why? Why does he do it that way? Well, believe it or not, lineage was very, very important to the Israelites. They were very, very, very particular about their lineage. The reason was that when God called them out of Israel, he, I'm sorry, called them out of Egypt, brought them into Israel, he assigned them land. They got an inheritance. We saw this when we looked at Ruth and Boaz, right? You get land, not based on whether or not you buy it or whatever, but based upon that this was an allotment that was given to you. The people of Israel were broken up by their clans, by their tribes, by their houses, okay? So there was 12, there are 12 different tribes, and then within those tribes, you had different numbers of clans. Within those clans, you had different numbers of houses. And based on where you were at in the family tree, that determined what property you got. In Ezra... Chapter 2, verse 62, we see this. 
We actually see this happening. They're coming back out of the exile, out of the deportation. They're coming back to the land of Israel. And there are a bunch of guys there that want to be priests. They're like, hey, hey, I need to be a priest. Well, God was very specific. Only people who are descended from Aaron can be priests. So they come back and they had a bunch of people that are looking to be priests. And it makes this statement in Ezra 2.62. It says, these, referencing guys who were seeking to be priests, sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. Now, this is what I want you to get out of this. These people have been wiped out of the land. They've been taken out of the land, dragged off into exile to Babylon, been there for a number of years. Everything's been destroyed. Everything's been lost. But what do they still have? They still have their genealogical records. And that's like, for you and me, that's not maybe something we'd be like, oh, you know, I'm going to hang on to that. But for them, it was very significant. All of the promises were made to Israel. In the Old Testament, Old Covenant promises, they were all made to Israel. And they understood that they were the people of God. And so they wanted to be able to prove it. And they understood that based on how they were related to each other, that determined where they got to live in the land. That determined what kind of property they got to hold on to. If they inherited a, a, a parcel of property or some sort of wealth, they passed that on to their descendants after them. So they come back out of Babylon. They come back out of exile. And one of the things they need to know is, well, how can we really be certain that these guys get this land? Genealogical record. Now, they had a bunch of guys claiming to be priests, and that's what this verse is specifically speaking about. And it says they were seeking their registration among the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. In other words, if they could not prove that they were supposed to be priests, if they could not verify that they were supposed to be legitimate priests descended from the house of Aaron, you're not going to be priests. Just put you out. You're not, you're not going to do it. Can't prove it. Your family tree doesn't say it. We're not sure of it. Not going to happen. Okay? Paul, now in the New to give you a New Testament example, Paul, writing in Romans 11.1, 1, he alludes to this same thing. It's important to him. He says to the Romans, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then right there, he wants to say, oh, and by the way, just so you know, I know where I'm from. I know who my, what house I belong to. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So for Paul, it's important to him too. It's not as important now as his relationship with Christ, but he was raised in that sort of an institutional background where, hey, genealogy is important. I know my genealogy. Matthew begins his gospel. He begins it with a genealogy to show very clearly one thing. Jesus is the heir of the throne of David. He is the descendant. He is the heir. He belongs on the throne of David because that's who the Messiah is. He's supposed to belong on the throne of David. So if you're writing to a bunch of Jews and they really, really, really value their genealogical record, their family tree, and you want to convince them and they absolutely shun you. They don't believe anything you have to say. But if you want to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, you're going to have to be able to demonstrate to a bunch of people who place ultimate significance and ultimate value on their family line. You're going to have to be able to prove to them that this guy actually has the pedigree that he actually deserves to sit on the throne. That's the approach Matthew takes. When I was at the University of Texas A&M getting a degree in philosophy, this is before I went to Dallas Baptist University and, and, and majored in biblical studies, I started out taking all my basic classes at Texas A&M, and I thought, hey, it would be fun if I took a class there, philosophy of religion. This is before I knew just exactly what I was getting into, okay? Let me just tell you about people who major in philosophy of religion. First off, they're not Christians but they want to have some sort of a religion, so they're going to be philosophy majors, okay? That's really, that's kind of a stereotype. That's a broad brush, kind of broad stroke. I'm painting in broad strokes, but that's the truth of it. These are guys who understand there's something broken in the world. They understand there's some sort of, you know, if you just think about it philosophically, there's some major issue that's going on. Something's not right. Where did we come from? Why is everything messed up? How do we fix it? These are fundamental questions that they're, they're wrestling with. They're wrestling with the questions of the nature of reality. How do I know that I'm really real and I'm not just some sort of figment of my own imagination? Or, you know, like how, and they're, they're, they're wrestling with all these ideas. They like asking the questions, but they don't necessarily want any answers. That's what I discovered about people majoring in philosophy. They love the questions. They love wrestling with the real deep issues of life. They just don't want to go anywhere with it. They just want to stay there at the question at the question level. And so I was taking basics and I stood in this class and I had a real dear friend. This is before I knew anything about anything. This is total, all I knew at that point in time, 
I love the Bible. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. At some point in time, I'm going to go into ministry. I am years and years and years away from ever stepping into any kind of a ministry role. I'm just taking a philosophy of religion class at the University of Texas A&M. That's all this is. I'm going to this church, Central Baptist Church, sitting under the preaching of Reverend Chris Osborne. I have a really dear friend. His name is Quinn. Quinn is a philosophy guy like me. Like, well, and what I mean by that is we both started off taking these philosophy classes. Now, the purpose of this class was not to teach the philosophy of religion, although that was the stated title. The purpose of the class was to mock and belittle everything about Christianity. That was the real purpose of the class. Now, there were other questions asked on the exam, but let's be honest here. The whole class was consumed with one issue. If you're a Christian, you're an idiot. <laughs> That's what the class was basically about. And I didn't know how to defend any of this stuff. On like the third or fourth, it was like the third or the fourth week of class, one of the issues that was brought up was the genealogical record of Jesus Christ. And honestly, I didn't know that this was a major issue. I just, you know, like it's my Bible. I love God. This is what I got. This is my book, right? Like I didn't know any of these critical issues. Boy, was I a sucker. I didn't even see this coming. And Quinn didn't see it coming either. And so you have Matthew 1, 1 to 17 here. And what does it say? It says, Jesus is the son of, just look at the very last name there in verse 16, Jacob. Jacob gives birth to Joseph. I'm sorry, Joseph, not Jesus. And then Joseph and Mary have Jesus, okay? Now, just keep your th finger there and flip with me over to Luke chapter 3. And, and just look at this. Luke chapter 3, look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. Okay, we, that's so far so good. No issues there. That's exactly what it says in Matthew. And Joseph was the son of Heli. Huh, problem. Who is Joseph the son of over here in Matthew? Well, he's the son of Jacob. Well, who's Joseph the son of over here? He's the son of Heli, or Heli, however you want to pronounce it. Contradiction. Who's he the son of? Who is he the son of? And you're a devout Christian, and you believe in Jesus, and you trust this book is completely true. And man, I got suckered. I didn't even see it coming. Day of class, are there any devout Christians in here? And they put the word devout in it. And that should have been my first clue. This is probably going to be a setup, but I didn't see it coming. Devout Christians as opposed to just people in name only, right? Like, do you actually practice your faith? That's kind of the nature of the question. Do you actually believe what you say you believe? Okay, yeah, that's me. So we raise our hands, me and Quinn. Okay, then, devout Christians, idiots, and in my case, double idiot coming straight out of the Marine Corps with no education. Um, can you explain to me who Jesus is the son of? Well, he was born to Joseph and Mary. You know, you're getting kind of like, you're, you know, the whole class, all 40 students in the class are like looking at you and you're like kind of shrinking in your desk, like getting lower and lower. Like, why is he singling us out, right? Really? Okay. And who's Joseph the son of? Uh, uh, you know, I don't know this information off the top of my head. Well, do you have your Bible? Yes, actually I do. I carry my Bible with me in my back. Okay, pull it out right quick. Okay, I pull it out. Go to Luke 3. Okay. Go to Matthew. Okay. So which is it? Mmm. Don't know. Don't know. And then this guy had a chip on his shoulder against Christians. I don't know why. I don't know why anybody has a chip on their shoulder. Uh, I, I know why, but he, he, was very, he was very antagonistic, right? And so from that day forward, for the rest of the semester, 12-week course, meeting three times a week for one hour, I was the guy that was the representative symbol of all that was wrong in the world. And so every philosophical question had some illustration which, by his imaginative powers, somehow came back to me and was somehow my fault <laughs> because of my beliefs and what I held on to as being utter ignorance. Now, let me ask you guys, do you have courage? Do you have the ability to stand up and say, this is true, even when you can't explain it? And it's easy when we're sitting here in a room like this, where we're all believers and we all love the Bible and we all trust in Jesus. That's easy, okay? They're friends in the room. But can you do it in a room in which everybody is against you and nobody agrees with what you believe? Can you? Can you stand up and say, this is the book that I trust in with all my heart, even though there are some things in it that I just don't understand? 
Can you stand on this even when you look like an idiot for doing so? Can you? And that's my conviction here. And this is my prayer for guys like Ryder, uh, Austin, Isaiah, even down to Jacob. You know, like, I'm looking for all of the kids in this church and all of you in this room as well to surrender at some point to the beauty of this Bible. Knowing full well you cannot fully explain some things in here, but believing that it is true. That is my job. That is my goal. That is my ambition. To get you to trust completely and totally in God's word, even when doing so, it makes you look stupid, but it makes him look great. That's my goal. That's my job. That's what I'm achieving here. My friend Quinn didn't make it. By the end of that semester, he did not attend church, and he came to a point in which he said, I do not trust in Jesus. I do not believe in Christianity. I do not think this book is true. So I don't know if that was the professor's intention, but it, if it was, he succeeded, at least with one of us, and nearly with both of us. How do you reconcile this? I mean, if you look at Luke, Luke has Jesus coming through the line of Nathan. If you look at Matthew, Matthew has Jesus coming through the line of Solomon. So which is it? How do we reconcile these two genealogies? How do we come to a point where we can say, you know, this is completely consistent, even though it looks completely different. Okay, they've got radically different names. They've got radically different, like there's a different genealogy going on in both cases. I'm not going to read you all the way through the one in Luke chapter 3, but it's different. Now, here's one popular suggestion, and this one has gained traction. It's been around for the last hundred years, and everywhere you go, this is what you hear. I asked my pastor in College Station, Reverend Chris Osborne, and this is what he offered me. Okay, I kind of went with it, but I, you know, it didn't sound right. The suggestion is offered that Luke here in Luke chapter 3, because it's focusing on the virgin birth and all of this sort of thing, that it's focusing, that it's explaining the birth as being that this lineage, this family tree, is basically the line of Mary. That sounds great. So this is all about Mary, and this is all about Joseph. And so this is the line of Joseph, and this is the line of Mary. Sounds great. Problem, though, is if you actually read it, which is what I did... Verse 23, Luke chapter 3, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. There's no mention of Mary. It's not it. She's not in there. And it would be very, very rare, and it doesn't matter. I mean, I know that Matthew is writing to Jews, and Luke is writing to this guy named Theophilus, who's a Greek, and so they've got different, different priorities in mind, different things they're trying to attain here. But even in the Greek world, you still reckoned family trees through the lineage of the father, not through the lineage of the mother. They just didn't do that. Okay? And so here you're looking at this and you're like, well, it says Joseph. How can you be certain that it's not talking about Joseph? Well, they really meant to say Mary. But that still puts me in the same problem as I was before. You see, I believe the Bible is true. I believe it is consistent. I believe that there are no contradictions. I think that there are some things that are hard to understand, but I don't believe there are any contradictions. I believe it's true. I believe I can take it at its word, that I can trust it. And you're saying for me to trust it, I have to not trust it. In other words, for me to trust this book, I got to look where it says Joseph, and it cannot say Joseph. It's really got to mean Mary. Doesn't really help me out here, now does it? Because when I go back to my philosophy professor on Monday, and I say, oh, I got the answer, prof. Here it is, Luke. He's going to say, really? I'm going to say, yeah. He's going to say, I don't see that. And then what am I going to do? Well, in the Greek. Okay, fine. Look it up in the Greek. Because I did. I went to school. I, got, I, got, I learned a few things about Greek. Guess what? It still says Joseph. I know sometimes translations make mistakes, but come on. They're not that bad. The guy's name is Joseph. Okay? This is both, both of these are Joseph. Both of them. Now, this one says he's the father, he's the son of Jacob, and this one says he's the son of Heli. Okay, so here's my best guess. I think it's a good one. Can you throw up the genealogy for me, please? Now, you guys all know that the promise was made to David. You shall never lack to have somebody sitting on the throne. I will raise up, you know, Messiah's going to come. He's going to be your great-grandson, and he's going to sit on the throne, and he's going to rule forever. That was the promise made to David. So David, he marries Bathsheba after he kills her husband, of course. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. He marries Bathsheba, 
and they have a couple of kids. They've got two kids. They have this son named Solomon, and they have another son, still the same son there, David and Bathsheba. They're full brothers. No, they're not half-brothers. The firstborn is Solomon. Actually, the firstborn didn't make it. He died as a result of David's sin with Uriah, so he didn't make it. The second son that they had, his name was Solomon, and so forth and so on. They also had Nathan, okay? Now, on the left side of the screen, I've got Matthew's record, and on the right side of the screen, I've got Luke's record. Now, this is condensed, okay? This is condensed. I'm not listing every single name. I'm listing names that I think are significant based on where there are different points of divergence and convergence, for that matter. So here you have Solomon. And, of course, you know the story about Solomon. He's a you know, pretty tyrannical king. Very, very wise, but very, very oppressive with his tax situation and trying to build the nation of Israel. Eventually, the, the nation splits as a result of his leadership. And then he has sons and so forth and so on after him. Eventually, it comes down to this one point where the guy sitting on the throne is a guy named Jeconiah. Now, remember, you're son of so-and-so and so-and-so and so, all the way back to Solomon, back to David. You know the promises that Yahweh has made to David. Basically, what Yahweh has said to David is, you will never lack to have somebody sitting on the throne. You will always have somebody sitting on the throne. My Messiah is going to come through your, your great line. So now imagine you're a descendant of David. You're the king. And again, it's by inheritance. Same way that you inherit a piece of property, you inherit the throne, okay? So based on your genealogical record, you just get this, okay? So you come along, your name's Jeconiah. Really, his name is Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, same guy. And uh, you come along, and you're like, hey, God made a promise. God never lies. God never does anything contrary to what he promises. So therefore, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to be the king, right? It's going to work out great, right? Like, I can't lose. I don't have to be loyal to him because he's loyal to his own word. I got a promise I can hold on to. I can go out and live any way I want. Now, this is a problem, right? Because he's tyrannical. He worships all kinds of different deities. He's not a very good king. In fact, in uh, 2 Kings, it says in chapter 2, uh, 8 through 24, sorry, chapter 24, 8 through 9, Jehoiachin, that's the same guy, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, same guy. He was 18 years old when he became king. Look how long he reigned. Amazing time on the throne. Did such a stellar job, God just left him there for years and years and years. No, not quite. We don't know exactly what he did, but it was bad. He was short, his time was short-lived. It says he, was three, he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Neshuta, Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. So whatever his dad did before him, that's what he did. His time was short-lived, three months. He's carried away to Babylon. He's carried into exile. Now, whatever he did, we don't know, but it was really bad. Because in Jeremiah 13, 18, again, this is talking about Jeconiah, it says, Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat. Look at this. For your beautiful crown has come down from your head. What's God saying there? I'm taking the throne away from you. I'm taking the crown away from you. You're done. Well, what about David? I mean, you promised David that there would never be a lack for somebody from the house of David to sit on the throne. And here you are, you're calling it quits on Jeconiah. And not only that, Jeconiah is done. Look at this, Jeremiah 22. You flip a couple of chapters over in Jeremiah 22. Verses 24 to 30. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, this is talking about Jeconiah, it's the same guy, though Coniah, and you know it's the same guy because it's his dad, Jehoiakim, uh, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. In other words, I am so thoroughly disgusted in Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, whatever name you want to call him, the son of Jehoiakim. It doesn't matter. I am so thoroughly disgusted with him. Even if he were the ring on my finger, the symbol of all that I, Yahweh, stand for, I would just rip that thing off and throw it away. That's what he's saying there. Now that's bad news, because remember, he's of the house of David. God's made a promise to David. So, he's done. I would tear you off, verse 25, and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. In other words, I would turn you over to the guys who are trying to kill you. That's how I feel about you. No sympathy from me. Again, we don't know. I mean, he was obviously worshiping false gods, false deities. God's very disgusted. He's got three months and then he's done. And now God, he's done. It's done. You're done. Okay, I would give you over to those guys. He says, who seek your life into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurt you 
Man, can you imagine God saying that to you? I will hurt you. And the mother who bore you, I'm sorry, I will hurl you. Wow, I read that wrong. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, this man, talking about Jeconiah, write this man down as childless. Write him down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. In other words, I know you're of the descendant of David. I know you're of the house of David. It doesn't matter what your genealogical record is. I know you've got kids, but that really doesn't matter. House of Israel, write him down as having no children because this much I can guarantee you, this guy and his children will never sit on the throne. And you're like, whoa, what about David? Because you promised David that you keep a guy on the throne. Now remember, Bathsheba had two sons. This guy named Nathan. Luke records the genealogy through Nathan Matthew records the genealogy through Solomon. Solomon has a son named Jeconiah. And we just saw right here, Jeconiah is done. He's done. There's no kids coming from Jeconiah they are going to sit on the throne. God has promised it. So, you've got Nathan. There's a long line of Nathan there. You follow it through Luke. Luke has, I'm sorry, Luke has it that Nathan has a great-great-grandson named Neri. And that Neri has a son named Shealtiel. Now look here. Look back here at Matthew. It says in verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Okay, so that's a problem. Which is it? Is Neri the father of Shealtiel? Or is Jeconiah the father of Shealtiel? Now God has already said, Jeconiah is done. So is Shealtiel sitting on the throne? Because later on it's going to record Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, as coming back from Babylon and helping to reestablish the throne in Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel is literally going to come back to Jerusalem and sit on the throne. So, is Zerubbabel the son of Jeconiah or is Zerubbabel the son of Neri? Well, God just told Jeconiah, none of your children will ever sit on the throne. Now, this is where it helps to actually know a thing or two about the Greek. And I am convinced that Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are really the son of Neri and not the son of Jeconiah. And this is why. In the Greek here, your ESV says, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. That's what it reads. But literally, and if you have an NAS, this is actually brought out a little bit better. Literally, it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so. In other words, so-and-so had so-and-so. That term, begat, typically means, traditionally it means, that you had a child, this was your child, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Remember Boaz and Ruth and Naomi? Remember that land issue that we looked at two weeks ago? That land can go into the hands of another person based upon whether or not they're relatives. It's like this today. If you have property and you drop a will, or let's say you don't drop a will and you die, your property will go to your nearest relatives. Your wife will inherit it or your children. This is how it works today. This is how it works back then. So Jeconiah and his sons, they die. Well, we come back from Israel. We've got to have somebody to sit on the throne. Who's the nearest next of kin? Well, all of Solomon's line seemed to have stopped with Jeconiah. Okay, is there anybody else in the house of David? Well, Nathan has kids. Nathan has this guy, Shealtiel, and the son of Shealtiel is this guy named Zerubbabel. So the throne is bequeathed, begotten, handed over to Zerubbabel. Now in Luke, it says, so-and-so was the son of, that is the biological child of so-and-so. But here in Matthew, it says, so-and-so begot so-and-so. And while the term begot almost usually means that he had a child, he had a descendant, it can also be understood in the sense that Whatever inheritance he had, whatever title he had, whatever property he had, whatever position, that is government, 
you know, monarchical monarchy rule he might have had, that could be handed over to somebody. That's another understanding of the word begat. So actually, and I think that this is true if you look at Matthew, because in Matthew, we have a genealogical record here that is missing lots of names. There are numerous kings missing from Matthew's record. He wants symmetry. Remember, he says 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the deportation and 14 generations from the deportation to the coming of Jesus Christ. Very symmetrical. The only problem is that in his listing, as he's listing out all these names, he's leaving out lots of people. There are numerous kings that are just flat out left off the list. And he says, so-and-so begot so-and-so, which is true because so-and-so had a son who had another son, who had another son, and then all this passed on down through the line to that son. So based on just a basic literal reading of Matthew, he does not insist upon the fact that someone is literally someone else's child. In other words, Matthew isn't trying to say that so-and-so was literally so-and-so's child. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he begot so-and-so. In other words, he had some property or some land or some title or whatever, and it's being passed down this direction. That means as far as Matthew's concerned, he is not handing down to you a literal family tree. He is not handing down to you an actual birth record. What he is interested in tracing, and this is something that was clearly understood by the Jews, because this is what they valued. In other words, to be a priest, Ezra 62 says it, they had to find their names in the genealogical record. For somebody to do this or for somebody to inherit this land, they had to have the genealogical record. They had this whole practice of levered marriage. They had this whole practice of kinsman redeemer. They had all of these things. So Matthew doesn't ever have to take the time because of whom he is writing to to say, now come on guys, you know this is how we do things. They would read this and they would get it right off the bat. They would read Solomon and Jeconiah and they would come to that name Jeconiah and they'd be like, whoa. I mean, we know Jeconiah didn't sit on the throne. We know it was Zerubbabel that came back and sat on the throne. They would know that. And they would know. Zerubbabel, I mean, they go back to their own public registers. They go back to their own genealogical records. And they would say, no, like Zerubbabel was really the son of Shealtiel, who was really the son of Neri. They would know that. They would get that. And so what you have is, you have the, and I've kind of put it in blue here. I don't know whether or not you, you can see that or not from where you're sitting. But in the blue, I've put what I call the royal descent. In other words, the title to the throne. That is the ancestry to the throne. It passes to Jeconiah. Things stop with Jeconiah. So the next guy is Shealtiel, who has Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel will have two sons. Okay? Luke records Zerubbabel as having Resa, and Resa is going to come all the way down to Heli. And from Heli, we're going to have Joseph. But Zerubbabel is going to have another son who's going to sit on the throne, whose name is Abiud. Abiud is going to come all the way down, and he's going to have a son named Jacob. Now, we don't know anything about these characters. They lived and they died in an era of history that is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's, not a lot of, there's no scripture that really speaks to this. There's not a lot of historical records to consult. But based on what happened with Jeconiah and Neri, it seems reasonable to conclude that since Matthew has already demonstrated that he's interested in the descent of the throne, that Jacob is probably not the legitimate biological father of Joseph. Hell he is. But at some point, just before the first century, or right there, right before the birth of Christ, Jacob probably died, didn't have any children after him, and so all of his possessions, all of his inheritance, everything that he had, passed to the nearest next of kin, which would have been Joseph. Luke records a lot of names, and I want you to flip over and look at one more time with me at Luke. Luke's purpose here, you jump to the tail end of chapter 3, Verse 38, he's tracked the genealogical record of Jesus all the way back. Look at this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke's purpose in his record is to show the literal biological descent all the way back to God. But Matthew's writing to a bunch of Jews and they need to know one thing. If this Jesus guy, if he's really going to be the king, does he really have a claim on the throne of David? Now here's the thing. Jesus is from the house of David, just not from the line of Solomon. 
He's from the line of Nathan. God promises David, from your house, you will not lack to have somebody seated on the throne. He never said specifically it would come through Solomon. So the promise is true. David still has a descendant that sits on his throne in Jesus. Matthew is concerned to show the royal descent. Now you're, you're asking, well, what about Mary? Like all this time I'd been told Mary was like, you know, related to the house of David too. I don't know that we can say that definitively. Well, so what? Mary got nothing? Like she brings nothing to the table? Well, I thought Mary was awesome. Come on now, tell me something good about Mary. You know, I actually was curious about that this week. So I did a little digging. We don't know anything about Mary. There's no genealogical record that we have. There's no, uh, you know, there's no record of her. We have very scant information. Here's what we know about Mary. And I, I just, if you're interested to flip there, flip over to Luke 136. This is what we know about Mary. Now Mary's getting ready to have a son. She's a virgin. She's about to birth Jesus. Gabriel's talking to her. And he makes this statement. He says, uh, the angel answered her. Go back to 35. The angel answered her. Again, this is Gabriel. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and blah, 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 blah. What we need to know for our purposes is that she's related to Elizabeth. In other words, her and Elizabeth are of the same house. Okay? At some point in time, they had a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather, something like this. They've come from the same line. They're relatives. So then the question is, well, we got nothing on Mary. Do we know anything about this woman, Elizabeth? Yes, we do. Jump back to chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Elizabeth is married to this guy, this priest, Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. Now look at this. Tail half second half of verse 5. And he had a wife, this is Elizabeth, from the daughters of Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron is the great high priest, Moses' brother. In other words, what you can say, what you can infer, is that Mary comes from the line of Aaron and Joseph comes from the house of David. In other words, he's got connections both to the great high priest and to King David, which means that Jesus, both lines converge on him. He is not just the great high king. He is the priest king. To my knowledge, this is the only point in any geological, genealogical record that I have researched in which there is a definitive crossover between the house of Aaron and the house of David. Jesus is a priest-king in the order of Melchizedek. And for those of you who've studied Hebrews, you know what that means. He is a priest and a king forever. In boxing, sometimes boxers, or, or if you're into UFC, ultimate fighting or whatever, they go out and they duke it out, right? And there's different divisions. There are different titles, right? So you can go in to a heavyweight class and you can knock somebody out in the heavyweight class. And then you can go home and you can really, really, really diet and, and you know, put on sweatpants and all this and try to you know, lose body weight and get down to the middle class weight. So let's just say you go into the heavy class division and you knock the guy out and you win the belt and you're the champion of the heavyweight division. And then you're like, you know what? I don't want to stop there. I could do, I could do great things. Maybe I, could, maybe I could win the middleweight division. So you start shedding body weight. You start trying to get your weight down. You go down in the lower weight class and guess what? You're successful there too and you knock out the champion of the lower weight class. You win both belts. What they say in the world of boxing and the world of UFC is that you have combined the belts. And what that means is you really can't separate those belts anymore because if you knock the guy out, you win both belts because he's got both of them. It's not like you just defeat him for one belt, but you can't defeat him for the other belt. You can defeat him for both belts. He has possessed, through his amazing boxing abilities, if you will, both belts. And so now if you're going to take him out, you get both belts. Jesus combines both lineages into one, which means if he's going to pass that inheritance off, all he's got to do is stay dead. But he doesn't. He comes back from the dead. 
And so, in Israel today, you've got people looking for the Messiah still to come. You've got people wondering and waiting and hoping and praying that the Messiah will still come. Here's the problem. For the last 2,000 years, there has been no genealogical record kept. There is no data on the descent of the Jews. Starting in 70 AD, when Jerusalem was totally wiped off the map, all records were destroyed, all data was lost. They managed to hang on to it through the Babylonian captivity, but they haven't hung on to it since then. Which means, if somebody comes along and says, I am the Messiah, if somebody comes along and says, I am the Christ, the one you've been waiting for, he cannot prove it. There is no way to prove it. There is no record. There is no title. There is nothing. These lines converge at Christ and they stay with him. Jesus is our great high priest and he is our king. And this record here in Matthew is in no way contradictory to the record in Luke because of what it is recording. See, Luke is interested in the biological record. Matthew is interested in the inheritance, the title that belongs to Jesus. My friend Quinn didn't make it. He looked at these two things and after a very cursory study, said, yeah, there's contradictions in the Bible. It doesn't make sense. And he quit. He gave up on him. And I got to tell you guys, it does. It takes a lot of courage or stupidity, what have you, to stand in a room, a bunch of people who are completely antagonistic to Christianity, and to say, yeah, I don't understand this. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make sense at its face, on its face. But I believe it. I believe it. I don't know how to make it work yet. I don't even know if I'll ever be able to make it work. But this much is true. There was a man. His name was Jesus. He died. He rose from the dead. And there is nobody. All you got to do to get me to abandon my faith, show me the body. And you can't do it, can you? You could never have done it. Because he demonstrated by his resurrection that everything that had been foretold about him, everything that had been said about him, and everything that he stood to inherit, all of it was completely true. Jesus is the Messiah. And so if you're a Jew living in the first century, and you got this tax collector, and he's writing to you, to us here in the 21st century, we're reading this thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We're like, okay, whatever, genealogical record, blah, 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 blah. Okay, skip down, skip to the next chapter. But to Jews living in the first century, this meant everything. This proves he inherits it. This proves he is the king. That means that Jesus, the Messiah, has come and he lives and he is here and now he is your king. And we don't really understand that term either because we talk about things in terms of, well, he's my elected representative and I vote him in office or whatever, you know, and if I don't like him, I'll vote him out of office. We understand that government, that authority, really ought to, whether or not you agree with that, it does, but it ought to reside in the hands of the people. But here's what Matthew is saying. No more to all of you guys, whether you're Pharisees, whether you're Sanhedrin, whether you presided over the execution of Jesus Christ, no more. It doesn't matter who you are or what your government position is or what authority you think you have. The king has come. He has arrived. He has been born of a virgin. And he's still alive. He's going to say that at the end of his gospel. It converged on him. He died, but he came back. Which means, for us here today, 21st century, 21st century, do we submit to him as a king? Is he really the Lord of your life? Do you really believe in him? And by believing in him, I'm not saying that you just, okay, yeah, I guess I believe this Bible. Because if you just treat this thing as some sort of a, you know, like a thing you do, it's a hobby, I promise you there will come a moment in which you will find yourself in a classroom with 30 to 40 avowed atheists who love asking deep questions with not getting the answers. And they love making fun of people who are simplistic. And they will come at you and they will attack you, and they will say, can you really believe this book? And they will mock it, and they will scorn it, and at the end of the day, you will be tempted to say, yeah, I don't really believe it. I don't really buy it. But, the question remains, is Jesus your king? That's a basic element of courage. When your king is being thrown under the bus, 
you stand up and you say, even though it makes you look like a total idiot, I believe this book. It makes no sense. I know you're going to make fun of me. I may fail the class. I didn't fail the class, but I was worried that I might. I don't care. There are things more important. There are things more necessary than me making you and the 40 of these other guys in this room who are just like me, freshmen in university, know nothing, just like me. There's something more important. There's something more pressing. Will I honor my king? Or will I bow down and cave in to what the world says based on a very surface level, know nothing, no understanding, very ignorant reading of the Bible? Who will you give in to? Whom will you bow down to? Will you honor him as your Lord, as your king, as he rightfully is? He has the pedigree to prove it. Or is he just some guy that you look up to once a week on Sunday as a good kind of moral, ethical guy? Which way will you have it? The other thing I want to say is this. God's providence is perfect. It's perfect. Sometimes you encounter Christians and, and they approach the Christian life like, well, I've got to be completely and totally in the center of the will of God or I'm going to screw this whole thing up. And, and, and they take great pains because they want to make sure that every, and they're, they're like all kinds of manner of craziness to try and discern the will of God, right? And if I just do this one little thing wrong, then I'm out of the will of God and then the whole plan is botched. Now, don't misunderstand me. You can get out of the, will of, the plan of the will of God. You absolutely can. You can sin against Him. You can rebel against Him. And you know what? Depending on the nature of what you do and how you go about it, there could be consequences of the like of which you may never return from. I'm talking ultimate consequences. Look at Jeconiah. But you notice, I make a promise to the house of David, Jeconiah screws it up, my arm is not shortened to fulfill the word that I declared to David. You do not disrupt the providence of God. You don't even come close. Okay? So I want to kind of alleviate from your minds this notion that, well... You know, I could have shared the gospel today with Johnny at the office, but I didn't feel like it, and I know it was a sinful attitude to have, and now Johnny is doomed forever. Okay, no. Okay, no. Now, should you have shared the gospel with your friend Johnny at the office? Absolutely. Did you maybe have an, an attitude that said, I'm not going to share the gospel? Yeah. Was that sinful? Yeah. Is, is that bad? Yeah. But is that the end of the road for Johnny? Not as far as God is concerned. Is that the end of the road for you? No. Now, could you have had the blessing of leading Johnny to Christ? Absolutely. Did you miss out on that blessing? Absolutely. You'll never get that back. But God is in control. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be these guys coming back from Babylon? Well, <laughs> can you imagine what it would have been like to be these guys coming back from Babylon? And you're like, oh, man, Jack and I is done. Like, it's all over. Like, it's the end of it. Not from God's perspective. Matthew, his whole life, he thinks it's done. I'm a tax collector. That's my epitaph. That's the end of it for me. That's on my obituary. I'm going to be shunned by my fellow Jews forever. And Jesus comes to Matthew and he says, I've got a better plan for you. And if you're here today, I want you to know it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've gone with your life or what mistakes you've made. That's not to say that any of the stuff you've done isn't bad or you don't deserve the consequences. But you need to know God is in control. And his king has come. And this guy can completely change your life no matter where you are or what you're going through. If you will trust him as your king, if you'll get goofy, just believe in him, even when it makes you look like an idiot. If you will honor him as your king, he will stay with you. Do you take him as your king? Let's bow forward in prayer. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that uh, you took the time to preserve this because you wanted us to know that you really are the heir of the throne, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel. You're our king, God. We love you. We thank you so much for humming and dying on the cross for our sins. God, if there's anybody here today that does not know you, I just pray you'd speak to their heart. I pray, God, that you would become their king.
We ask these things in Jesus' name. The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word.